Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the ninth session of the IPS Sing Singapore Perspectives Conference 2021 Reset. My name is Han, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. This session is entitled Global Trends, Social Movements and Democracy. And before I introduce the moderator and hand the session over to him, let me please run through some brief administrative matters. Please submit your questions for the panelists via pigeonhole in the question submission session uh, on this conference page. You can do this at any time during the session. We invite all at our conference to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner, focus on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to act in a way to ensure this is always the case in all of the chat or the QAA functions in our conference site. Uh, this session will be moderated by Mr. Ho Kong Ping. Mr. Ho is the founding chairman of Banyan Tree Holdings and Singapore Management University. Mr. Ho, over to you, please. Thank you, Han. Welcome, everyone. And uh, tonight is the final session of the online forum of this year's IPS Singapore Perspectives Conference. The topic is global trends, social movements, and democracy. Over the last few days, we've discussed global social and economic trends and their impact on Singapore. We will conclude the conference with a look at the political dimensions. The decline of liberalism in Western societies, the rise in populist movements and far-right political parties, and the overall disenchantment with democracy and its promises of a better life for everyone has been assailing us every time we turn on the TV or tune into our favorite social media platforms. In fact, the self-proclaimed world's oldest democracy, the USA, will tomorrow inaugurate its president-elect under the previously unimaginable scenario of a failed coup, something which, as one American ex-president said, could only happen in a banana republic. The anti-democratic impulse, already brewing as a backlash against excessive globalization, has suddenly gathered more steam with the pressures of this pandemic. However, watching from television or social media, the response of most Singaporeans have largely been a, a sort of, aren't we lucky that it can't possibly happen here kind of bemusement. Now that may well be, but a sanguine and self-comforting, perhaps even complacent attitude might bounce back to bite us. You may be surprised to learn from our first speaker that Singaporean sentiments about the benefits of globalization or their desire to emigrate might reflect potentially worrying undercurrents. But I don't want to steal the thunder from Dr. Roberto Foa and we'll let him explain that to you himself. The format tonight, as in other sessions, will have two speakers giving 15 minute remarks and two discussants following up with five minutes each. Then some interaction between all the panelists and responses to your questions. Please submit your questions via the Pigeonhole app. I'll be introducing each of the panelists before they individually speak. Our first speaker, Dr. Roberto Foa, wears three hats at Cambridge University. Co-director of the Center for the Future of Democracy, director of the UGov Cambridge Center for Public Opinion Research, and is lecturer on politics and public policy. He's a pioneer in creating and analyzing social development indices and surveys in developing countries and is widely published on issues such as democratic legitimacy, authoritarianism, historical state formation, and comparative politics. Over to you, Roberto. Thank you very much, Mr. Ho, uh, for the introduction. 
And let me take this opportunity first to express my gratitude to the organizers for the invitation to speak here tonight. So in the next 15 minutes or so, I will be discussing recent trends across the world in democratic values and civil society activism. And in doing so, uh, I will be sharing with you uh, some unique uh, unpublished data that has been collected uh, in Singapore in 2020 and around the world in 2020 and in recent years. And presenting that data in a very raw form uh, in order to provide us with an anchor for a discussion about what the big uh, social societal trends and shifts in the world have been in recent years, in particular in relation to issues such as rising polarization or the rise of identity politics. Um, and how those trends do, or indeed in some cases, uh, perhaps do not uh, relate to uh, life in Singapore. Now, obviously, uh, issues such as polarization and identity politics are um, very contemporary issues and uh, issues which uh, one can find a wide variety of uh, passionate opinions uh, if one looks around online these days. Unfortunately, passionate opinions that are very often not anchored uh, in facts and research uh, and discussions which sometimes generate a lot more heat uh, than likes. So in order to keep uh, this discussion fairly cool, uh, as I say, I will just be presenting to you uh, some raw data uh, in charts uh, without too much interpretation, which I think is best left to those uh, who know Singapore best. Uh, okay, so without further ado, what is the data uh, that I will be presenting to you now? Uh, so in my position uh, at the Center for the Future of Democracy uh, and at the UGov Cambridge Center for Public Opinion Research, I have access to a number of useful data sets uh, for getting a handle on these issues. First of all, we have uh, our global satisfaction with democracy data set uh, put together by my colleague, Andrew Clarson, that um, he has put together almost 50 data sources now, pretty much anyone anywhere over the last half a century who has asked about how satisfied they were with their political institutions. His goal has been to gather all of that together. And that also includes quite a few observations from Singapore, including uh, Singapore in 2020. Um, I also, as in my role as principal investigator of the World Value Survey in Indonesia and Bangladesh in the recent round, uh, will be presenting to you some World Value Survey data, uh, including the fantastic work that was done by the Singapore team uh, last year. Um, we also have some data uh, within the UGov Cambridge Center of Public Opinion Research, uh, UGov have done uh, uh, our first globalism survey that we did back in 2016, uh, included a Singapore sample. And so that gives us some data about attitudes to globalization in Singapore, at least as of that time. Uh, and there's also been a lot of fantastic work done by YouGov Singapore uh, over the last year. Uh, some of those uh, findings I can share with you. So what are the key results when we think about the big shifts in public opinion and attitudes and civil society activism in the last uh, year or so? Well. Um, the first observation, which is perhaps not terribly surprising, uh, is that there has been rising dissatisfaction with political institutions across the world. Um, and that is, uh, uh, I'd say, very much a worldwide trend. It's particularly severe in countries like the United States or in Southern Europe. Um, and uh, we showed in our recent report last year how dissatisfaction has risen on average uh, population weighted across the world's democracies by around 10 percentage points in the last couple of decades. Is Singapore immune from that trend? Uh, and the answer is not entirely. So if we include in the Singapore data here, uh, here I've just flipped it so that it's satisfaction with democracy uh, across the world and in Singapore. 
efficacy, we don't have too many observations from Singapore. Uh, so we may not be too confident about that final 2020 observation, whether it's a significant difference. But we can see that Singapore has pretty much tracked uh, this slight downward trend that we find in other countries. Um, but of course, the other thing that jumps out from observing this chart is that Singapore has levels of satisfaction that are extremely enviable to almost any other country in the world. And the satisfaction with political institutions in Singapore is uh, absolutely among one of the highest levels anywhere. And that remains the case today, not least of all because satisfaction everywhere else has been declining. Um, so it seems that Singapore is not entirely immune to this trend. However, um, when we look at some of the data specifically we have for 2020, um, we don't have a, a tracker on satisfaction with institutions uh, in Singapore in 2020. We do have one in the UK. So we've been asking people in the UK every single day, a nationally representative sample, how satisfied people are with British democracy. But we do have this item uh, from YouGov Singapore that looks at um, how satisfied people are with the Singapore government's uh, response to the pandemic. And we can actually see that not only is satisfaction very high, uh, but since July 2020, that satisfaction has actually been rising and, and that Singapore is pretty much one of the only countries in the world where that's true. Everywhere else, the satisfaction has actually been declining. Uh, so that's perhaps a positive signal. And I'm just going to present to you briefly before I finish um, some charts on three of the big issues for 2020, which are populism, polarization, and identity politics. So if we start with the issue of political polarization, uh, as Mr. Ho mentioned, uh, very visible in the United States right now uh, and in recent weeks. We can see that actually across the world, when we ask people questions such as, you know, whether you demonize your political opponents, do you think a person is bad if they disagree with you politically? Um, that is quite high in some countries. In some countries, the majority of the population believes that. Uh, but perhaps more concerningly, in Western societies, we see a really big intergenerational divide in, in perhaps the wrong direction. So we find that younger individuals in the United States or in Britain uh, are much more likely to hold this view, to demonize political opponents than older generations were. What about Singapore? Has Singapore been subject to this same trend? Well, it looks like the answer is no, as far as we can tell. So that's reassuring. So we look at a similar question that's being posed in Singapore, uh, whether you would uh, you know, not, not associate with people who disagree with you politically. We can see that almost nobody in Singapore agrees with that point of view. Uh, and what I think is also reassuring is that uh, younger generations in Singapore are actually slightly less likely uh, to agree with that than older generations. So it's actually moved perhaps a little bit, uh, a very tiny bit, in the opposite direction. So that's one reassuring sign there. What about when we think about identity politics, the primacy of group identities over, over collective uh, shared belonging? Well, obviously, that's been a big issue uh, in Western democracies and a very contentious issue. Um, one of the questions we might want to ask is, well, you know, how does that affect Singapore? And it looks like it, as far as we can tell, um, it hasn't affected Singapore in quite the same way as elsewhere. Um, certainly, when you ask people about explicitly discriminatory attitudes based on identity group, uh, based on religion or ethnicity, there are very few people. In fact, Singapore has one of the lowest rates in the world of people who would say, you know, I would object to having somebody of a different religion, the next door neighbor. I would have rejected someone. I would object to someone of a different ethnicity as a next door neighbor. Um, Singapore is really uh, only a few percent of the population uh, will express uh, belief in that. And e even if there are individuals who believe that and won't express it, um, you might argue that uh, simply the fact of people not wanting to express such things is already progress uh, in and of itself. Um, 
so it's not necessarily a bad thing either. So Singapore is definitely way ahead of other countries in Asia and around the world in this regard and, and remains, uh, remains ahead uh, in that respect. Um, if we start to look at other issues that have revolved around you know, some of the uh, identity politics, um, contention, progress, advance, uh, uh, debate of recent years, um, uh, we don't have so much data, but I've pulled out a few observations. So if we look at the issue of uh, sexual harassment, uh, which has obviously been very salient with the Me Too movement in uh, recent years. Subjectively perceived harassment uh, in Singapore is, is quite low. Uh, obviously, that is uh, the subjective perception, uh, although arguably it is the, the subjective perception really that matters and that it's actually shifts in subjective perception about appropriate standards and rules is actually the core of the, um, core of, of the contention. So we can see that in Singapore, um, subjectively perceived harassment is quite low, not only globally, um, but actually also in comparison to other countries in East Asia. And we can also see that when we break it out by generation, so are there sort of shifting standards across generations that can lead to conflict? Um, well, we see that Singapore, the gap is actually quite low uh, between millennials and older generations. And that's quite a striking contrast from other, other parts of Asia, such as Japan, uh, where there actually does seem to have been a big value shift uh, in, in the last generation on this issue. Um, so it's perhaps not quite uh, uh, as a contentious topic in Singapore, uh, perhaps as it has been elsewhere. Okay, and finally, I'd like to just uh, present a few um, charts and observations on populism and the reaction against globalization. So we have a lot of questions on this from the YouGov data set, uh, because the YouGov uh, globalism data set that we've been building for the last four years is explicitly uh, designed to look at attitudes to globalization. And in the 2016 uh, pilot study, uh, Singapore was also included. So that's useful for giving us some comparative basis. So, you know, one of the uh, core issues in the anti-globalization backlash has been immigration. And we can see quite clearly across countries that when you ask individuals, uh, do you think the benefits of immigration outweigh the costs? Or do you think the costs outweigh the benefits? Um, in almost every country, uh, that's a net negative balance at the present point in time. That is, that more people uh, believe that immigration is costly uh, than beneficial, and sometimes by really quite staggering uh, margins. Um, and Singapore, it seems, is not uh, entirely immune uh, to this trend. So when we look at the items in Singapore, uh, it does look like there's a little bit of um, perhaps a backlash. Uh, but I think one thing that's quite important to stress is that it's driven more by economics uh, than by identity politics. And we'll get into that in a moment. So there's quite a, a large number of Singaporeans uh, who uh, would like to limit immigration. Uh, when people are given the question battery, should there be limits or a total stop even to immigration? Uh, that's a, an opinion that is approved of by quite a large number of, of people in Singapore. Um, and yet at the same time, when you ask people whether immigration is damaging for society, that actually, that opinion is not widespread in Singapore. Uh, very few people in Singapore, at least compared to other countries, um, uh, believe that immigration has increased social conflict. And actually, if you look at the countries on this chart, that are immigration societies, Singapore is actually one of the least likely to approve of this sentiment. Uh, whereas many other societies, that, that belief is quite widespread. So it doesn't seem to be that Singaporeans think that immigration damages society or Singapore in any way. 
or even Singaporean cohesion. But there does seem to be a strong link to economic concerns. Uh, so if you ask people if employers should favor locals over immigrants, it's certainly very strong support for that view uh, shown here. Uh, and when you ask people, and this was in our pilot study in 2016, uh, whether globalization has benefited the wealthy exclusively, a lot of people in Singapore take that view uh, a lot more than many other countries around the world. So I think that what that indicates is that this is really uh, driven by economics, not by identity politics. And that's clear in the polling data when you ask Singaporeans what the top issue is. Uh, cost of living comes up, number one. Uh, identity concerns, identity politics, immigration even actually quite low down on that list. Um, and perhaps indicative of that is that Singaporeans are not only uh, concerned about or open to reducing immigration, but actually very open to emigration. So there's quite a large number of Singaporeans who, when they're asked, uh, would you live anywhere else in the world if you had the chance, a very large number of Singaporeans say yes. And again, what that implies is that, you know, this is not about uh, preserving a Singaporean identity. This is about cost of living, rent, uh, opportunities to get by, uh, salaries, wages, and, and earnings and savings. Um, so uh, just to round off, and that's consistent with what we've observed in uh, other countries as well. So just to quickly round off, um, there has been a global decline in confidence in political institutions. Singapore is no exception, um, but overall confidence in Singapore remains extremely high. Secondly, um, many countries uh, do exhibit rising political polarization these days, uh, but doesn't seem to be the case in Singapore whatsoever. There's really no evidence of any change over time or over generation in the Singaporean context. Um, what about populism and identity politics? Not really any evidence of identity politics uh, being divisive or strong in the Singaporean context, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, however, uh, there does seem to be uh, anti-immigration sentiment and maybe even an anti-globalization sentiment that's quite widespread and is really linked to the issues of jobs inequality and cost of living. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto, for providing the uh, data points for what seems to be a relatively assuring uh, conclusion about Singapore. Our second speaker is Dr. Terence Chong, who's going to be speaking about the rise of populism in the world and how it will impact Singapore in particular. He will touch on the implications that populism has for class, meritocracy, and social values in Singapore. Now, on the issue of meritocracy, I think we all know as Singaporeans that meritocracy has taken has become the lodestone of good governance as probably something even more desirable and important than democracy itself. Therefore, it might actually surprise many of us to learn that in 1958, the seminal book titled The Rise of the Meritocracy, in which the word meritocracy itself was coined, actually referred not to a ideal society, but to a dystopian society where class barriers previously based on race or wealth or caste were simply replaced by academic or occupational achievements. I think in a way it's quite timely for us that um, a, a recent book called The Tyranny of Merit has linked the dominance of meritocracy to the rise of populism. I quote here from the author Michael Sandel because it, to me actually there are some points that might be relevant to us in Singapore and I quote, the relentless emphasis on creating a fair meritocracy in which social positions reflect effort and talent has a corrosive effect on the way we interpret our success or the lack of it. Meritocratic hubris 
is the smug conviction of those who land on top that they deserve their fate and that those on the bottom deserve theirs too. This attitude is the moral companion of technocratic politics. Now that certainly is food for thought for ultra meritocratic Singapore. Uh, Terence Chong is a sociologist and deputy director at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. His achievements are actually very impressive, including of course, authorship of several books and membership of advisory boards, but he asked that his CV be kept very short, um, possibly because of concern that he might be branded a member of the meritocratic elite. But he did let on, however, in an email that he wouldn't mind, bearing in mind that we're talking about identity politics, he wouldn't mind being identified proudly as a Liverpool football fan. So over to you, Terence. And uh, thank you to IPS for inviting me to speak. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, so just to pick up from Kongping's um, earlier introduction, I mean, democracy is undergoing upheaval around the world. The New Yorker magazine in the February 2020 issue announced that nothing so sharpened one's appreciation for democracy as bearing witness to its demolition. The Economist in its November 2020 issue asked, how resilient is democracy? And meanwhile, Freedom House in 2018 proclaimed that democracy is in crisis. Now, many of these commentaries share the same diagnosis for this upheaval. There is widespread anger in the, with the political establishment across societies. Economic discontent and anxiety among the middle class has heightened with the acceleration of globalization. And as a result, anti-establishment leaders and movements have emerged on both the right and left of the political spectrum. And in some cases, challenging fundamental norms and institutions of liberal democracy. Many of such diagnoses are the result of serious and thoughtful deliberation by educated observers. However, I think they all work on a common premise that there is only one form of democracy, namely liberal democracy against which all other forms of democracy are judged. It's no wonder that these commentaries are written with the heavy hand of pessimism and depression. I like to think that scholars, particularly those of Southeast Asian societies, uh, people like me, are a little more circumspect. We have long been familiar with terms like illiberal democracy, competitive authoritarianism, guided democracy, and so on. And these different types of democracies uh, reflect the different roles institu institutions like the media, civil society, and trade unions have in different societies. In some societies, such institutions have a bigger say in shaping public opinion and are expected to influence policymaking. While in other societies, they are given limited and clearly defined roles. And they also reflect the different weightage given to personal freedoms and individual rights on one hand, and collective responsibilities and civic duties on the other. But the, okay, this is not the occasion to debate over which type of democracy is preferable, but rather to point out that liberal democracy is not the only species of its kind. Nevertheless, regardless of the brand of democracy practice, populism seems to be a growing feature in the disruption of political norms. Populism can be simply defined as a movement or approach that appeals to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. However, it's more complex than that, of course. 
German philosopher Jan Werner Müller argues that it's necessary but insufficient to be critical of elites in order to count as populist. The defining feature of populism, according to him, is his anti-pluralist stance. That is that they and they alone can represent the people. And because populism is binary and exclusive, it's a danger to democracy, civil discourse, and diversity. So scholars elsewhere have discussed the origins and varieties of populism, but I think I'll identify just two types which I think are pertinent to today's discussion. The first type of populism is the attempt to paint established elite groups as uncaring and out of touch with ordinary people. So we saw this in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and the Occupy movement in America. In 2016, Donald Trump rode into the White House by promising to drain the swamp. And closely linked to this type of populism is the demand for economic goods. This may come in the form of welfare privileges such as free education, free healthcare or free public transport, which may not be financially sustainable in the long term. But such economic goods are argued by anti-establishment politicians to be the right of citizens and can thus be a very persuasive form of politics. I think the second type of populism comes in the form of a cultural backlash against perceived cultural progressive change. Social scientists have argued that certain groups like, but not exclusive to, baby boomers, religious conservatives, right-leaning citizens, and large sections of ethnic majorities are reacting against liberal values such as cosmopolitanism, feminism, multiculturalism, immigration, as Roberto has pointed out, and certain forms of racial discourse. And because of this, conservative groups are more likely to vote for right-wing populist parties in order to preserve their own values and way of life, which they perceive to be under threat. Again, such forms of cultural backlash are not new and can be traced back to the culture wars in the US in the 1980s. So where does this leave Singapore? As an open economy that is plugged into the world, we cannot help but be impacted by such changes. So the million dollar question then is how will Singapore's politics and citizens be influenced by the different types of populisms mentioned? So as a meritocratic and increasingly class stratified society, Singapore is always in danger of the first type of populism. Local studies have shown that the class divide has become entrenched in our society. The 2017 IPS study of social capital in Singapore revealed that Singaporeans who live in public housing tend to have fewer friends who live in private housing, while students from elite schools also tend to be less close to those in non-elite schools and vice versa. In other words, not only are social classes reproducing themselves, people from different social classes are mixing less with each other. And, when, and you can imagine when this happens, it becomes easier to view each other unsympathetically. And if you are at the lower end of the economic ladder, it becomes easier to believe that those at the top are just not interested in your well-being. For example, if you cast our minds back to the 2011 general elections, and the PAP won 60% of the popular vote. There were several hot button issues in the run up to elections. Firstly, a liberal immigration policy had resulted in the perception that Singapore was overwhelmed by foreigners, leaving many lower income Singaporeans anxious over their jobs and place in society. A fair amount of xenophobia was also thrown in the mix. Secondly, infrastructural issues such as overcrowding, overcrowded public transportation, 
and the frequent breakdown of trains, as well as the long waiting times that newly married Singaporeans had to endure to secure their public flats contributed to public discontent. And if you remember, the embedded in this public discontent were criticisms that the political establishment was out of touch with the lives of ordinary Singaporeans. And these criticisms were amplified by opposition politicians who claimed to speak on behalf of these Singaporeans. And all this resulted in the ruling party winning its, winning its lower share of the popular vote since independence. You also saw the historic loss of the GRC to the opposition. To the government's credit, many of the unpopular policies were tweaked after the elections. The immigration tab was tightened, while public transport and housing development works were ramped up to meet demand. So much so that when 2015 came around, these issues were no longer hot-button ones. Nevertheless, the point is that as we become a more deeply stratified society, resentment towards our political and economic elites will always lurk beneath the surface. All it takes is a careless remark by a politician or elite member of society for such resentment to spill over into the public realm. And our myth of meritocracy only adds to resentment. To be sure, our brand of democracy has served us well over the decades. It has rewarded individual talent, hard work, and ensured that individuals from humble origins are not denied opportunities to climb the economic ladder. However, studies have shown today that the reproduction of social class means that children from middle and upper middle class families are ensured the head start in life, and children from working class families will be playing catch up for the rest of their lives. And I think meritocracy also has psychological consequences, one of which is that one has to know one's place in society. After all, if one has a mediocre job or draws an unattractive salary, the unavoidable inference is that one either lacks the merit or is not hardworking enough since one's socioeconomic status must necessarily be a reflection of one's worth in any meritocracy, meritocracy. So it is not hard to imagine how such frustrations can fester among our working and lower middle class communities, making them vulnerable to populism and the politics of resentment. So if class is one fault line, then the clash of values is also another fault line. The second form of populism, though not yet as pronounced as the first, as Roboto has pointed out, comes in the form of the so-called cultural backlash that I mentioned. It is a psychological reaction among older or more conservative sectors of the population against rising, the rise of progressive values and norms. The rise of progressive values has taken place in Western societies over the past half century, meaning to say that economic and post-industrial development has ushered in the emergence of post-materialist values such as climate change, human rights issues, as well as gender and sexual um, and racial equality. And scholars have called this a silent revolution. This does not mean that materialist values have faded into oblivion. Instead, we are seeing more frequent examples of the clash of values in Singapore. We have not been spared such uh, clashes. In the last decade or so, um, we have seen issues such as the parliamentary debate to abolish 377A in 2007, the AWARE saga in 2009, in which Christian women took over a secular women's rights group, uh, the religious and conservative opposition to the opening of the two casinos in 2010, just to name a few. I think more recently, we've also seen a new wave of progressive values such as work culture, cancel culture, 
cultural appropriation, heightened sensitivity to perceive racial stereotyping and uh, discrimination. So what we are seeing now is in addition to previous debates over public morality issues such as sexual orientation and gambling, we now have to deal with public discussions of race and ethnicity. Examples include the public criticism of Dennis Chu, a Chinese actor who Brown faded himself to portray an Indian character in a local advertisement in 2019. And just last year in the elections, it was found that one of the opposition candidates had suggested that rich Chinese Christians and white expatriates receive preferential treatment in Singapore in her previous social media posts. So quite clearly, the tolerance for perceived racial discrimination has lowered considerably amongst younger Singaporeans. And this silent revolution in Singapore has been noticed. In the aftermath of the elections, Home Affairs Minister Ms. Um, K. Shamugam noted, and I quote, I think the older generation of Singaporeans takes one approach to how issues of race and religion are discussed, and they have a framework within the law. But it's also clear that the younger generation takes a different approach. And I think we need to find a way in which those aspirations and viewpoints can be dealt with because the younger generation of Singaporeans are going to be in charge of Singapore and their views on how these things ought to be discussed need to get a substantial degree of attention too, unquote. Now, I think the cultural backlash phenomenon has not fully materialized in Singapore yet. Conservatives are not voting for conservative populist parties to push back against progressive and liberals. However, it is clear to any observer of Singapore that fault lines have formed over values and are deepening. In their extreme forms, liberal values such as woke culture, cancel culture, political correctness, um, and cultural appropriations are themselves binary and exclusive and anti-pluralist as well. So in conclusion, what will a Singapore divided by class and values look like? We are already living in different economic worlds. We are geographically separated by public housing, private or landed property. The social networks that we built in schools and in our professions will define us. Common institutions and spaces such as national service, coffee shops, hawker centers will be necessary but insufficient to build common bonds across these economic worlds because the class the draw of class and values is strong. But I think all is not lost. As individuals, we have multiple identities and we are not defined only by our class and social political values. We are also fathers, mothers, professionals, citizens, members of civil society groups and so on, even football fans. So much will depend on whether we are able to put aside the things which divide us and focus on the things that we share in common. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Terence. I think um, you would all agree that the first two speakers have really worked together very well. Um, Roberto, I think, provided the broader global context within which we have the specific topics and questions that raised, that's raised by Terence. Now, would, I'd like to invite our two discussants to respond to the speakers and what they said. Uh, the first discussant is um, Aaron Maniam who is what he calls, he's a self-described curious generalist. Uh, he's a civil servant by profession, interested in the links between good governance and technology. And in his free time, he writes poetry and facilitates interfaith dialogue while the rest of us just play golf. 
like Roberto, Aaron also did his PP in Oxford and he's now completing his PhD there. And other than that, he's not really that intimidating. He's just a regular guy. So Aaron, what is your take on the uh, two speakers? Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Ho, and thanks so much, Roberto and Terence, for those remarks. Uh, also, thanks to IPS for this very kind invitation to, to join all of you this evening. Um, I was very struck by many things in Roberto and Terence's remarks, but I wanted to focus on, on one aspect in particular, right? The fact that, as Roberto painted, there's a fairly positive story about Singapore, but directionally, we're moving in, in, a, in a way that might be cause for concern. And as Terence put it, we could end up as a very divided entity. Uh, but there is cause for hope. And what I wanted to do was really flesh out where those causes for hope might, might actually lie. Um, and I wanted to build on this idea that Terence talked about, you know, with this, the notion that there are many different types of democracy. I fully agree with that. And I think we need to really do more work, actually, to try and define what a Singaporean model of democracy might look like, uh, rather than simply import the, the labels that exist elsewhere in the world. And one thing I've been thinking about a lot is, can we call ourselves a communitarian democracy? And what would that mean, right? I say communitarian in the sense that, you know, we draw identities from a whole range of um, different sources, right? We're not just thin cells. All of us come from different communities. We have identities of language, of culture that, that give us richness as individuals. Michael Sandel, whom you mentioned, uh, Mr. Ho, actually started off as a theorist of communitarianism, right, before he decided to delve into work on, on justice and, and meritocracy. Uh, and I think if we bring communitarianism of the kind that he talked about and mix it with the notion of democracy, right, that protects individual rights um, and, and that ensures that each of us has a voice in the governance um, that we live in, that might be a really interesting model for, for us to consider. Because I think at the heart of a communitarian democracy, what we really would have is a system whereby individuals participate in a very lively way in the political life that they're, they're in. And what I mean by that is that voting for representatives will be important, right, through things like elections. But those are procedural things that happen um, at regular intervals. In daily life, we will need to find ways for people to participate and take part in in a deep cultural and ethos driven way in the lives of the societies that they're in. And I think this kind of, you know, what some like to call deliberative democracy or participative democracy is really gonna be key for Singapore. Let me say a little bit about why. Um, I think that sort of deep participation will be important, first of all, because we're gonna be facing far more complex issues in the future than we have in the past, right? And we need therefore to bring multiple perspectives together in this sort of participative way in a way that emphasizes nuance and not just the simplistic generalizations that can lead to the kind of populisms that both Roberto and, and Terence uh, spoke about. But even more importantly than that, we need participation because that is how the multiple identities that we all have can interact with each other. The same identities that Terence talked about, which I agree with, I think we need to make sure that they interact with each other, that they find spaces to enliven one another and to actually engage so that we learn about the complexity of the people that we live together with, right, in, in the societies that we're in. I think what a participative or deliberative system also allows us to do is to engage in collective learning, right, where society and different members of it can teach each other about the complexity of the issues that they're facing. And this then engenders, I think, a much greater form of ownership in the overall political life that we're participating in. I think this is going to be very key for us in Singapore, because if we, if we don't sort that out, then I think the kinds of wide-ranging challenges and complex issues that we're facing could end up you know, being sources of division, as Terence talked about, rather than being sources of bringing us together. We don't have to agree on everything, but I think 
a deliberative system would allow us to have a space within which those disagreements can actually coexist with one another, even while we commit to a larger national project that is the future of the, the space and country that we all live in. Now, of course, what I've painted is in a lot of ways an idealized notion. A, a lot of polit politics is going to be about having a set of ideals and then figuring out how we measure up to those ideals in the best possible way, right? Even ideas like Singapore's pledge is very much a set of ideals and then we figure out ways to move towards it as quickly as we can and in as rich a way as we can. So what are gonna be some of the necessary conditions that allow us to achieve some of this communitarian democracy right, and the richness that it actually has? I think the first thing is we'll need to ensure that ours is an inclusive politics, a politics that is, in, that is inclusive, not just in the sense of giving people equal access to resources, both financial and, and educational and civic, but we also need to make sure that people have the wherewithal to participate in political life. That means an educational system that equips them with the vocabulary, and a technology system that allows them to participate in a political life that is increasingly digital um, in this day and age. What we also need is a common information architecture. And what I mean here is that there has to be some collective understanding of what truth is and what trust means coming out from that truth. And if we actually end up in a situation where we suspect everything that's out there of being a deep fake, that I think is deeply problematic. And that common infrastructure of truth is going to be really quite critical to be an underpinning for any kind of rich democratic life in the future. So I think if we're going to have that sort of communitarian democracy, right, where we give expression to the complexity of our own identities and allow them to interact with one another in a democratic space, then we will need to ensure that inclusion and information are the bedrocks of that um, overall um, societal arrangement. I'll stop there and then see where the, the questions take us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. You know, I, I couldn't help but reflect when you talked about communitarian democracy or deliberative democracy and so on. I could not help but reflect that one of the positive ironies of what's happening to, to the United States, the so-called bastion of democracy, is that hopefully what has happened in the last four years will bring an end to American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. to the idea that democracy has only got one form and one shape. Yeah. And that's what you get in America. I think the whole world has recognized that both Anglo-Saxon capitalism and American-style democracy is not really the only system that uh, can exist. And, and therefore, the richness of what possibilities that now exist for, for societies on their own to develop their own systems is much more than before. Now, having the last word is always a very important position, which I've reserved for the only woman tonight, but someone who's also very formidable in her own right. Uh, Zoraida Ibrahim is an experienced Singapore political journalist and author and currently deputy executive editor of the South China Morning Post and also editor of its weekly news magazine. Her career in Singapore includes having been deputy editor of the Straits Times and co-author of books on Lee Kuan Yew as well as opposition parties in Singapore. So she's very knowledgeable of both sides of the fence. Uh, Zoraida, you have the final say in all this before we open up for everybody to discuss amongst themselves. Um, thank you very much, Kwon Peng. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Terence. And thank you, Aaron, for this very fascinating discussion. And I want to thank the organizers for letting me be a part of it. Um, but as a respondent, I'm going to approach this rather differently from Aaron. And I think I'm just going to confine myself to posing a series of questions, which I hope we can spend some time addressing uh, in the next remaining time that we have. 
Uh, I think first I, I want to ask Roberto or rather just pose some questions on the survey findings that uh, Roberto shared, shared with us. I think they were extremely fascinating and I wish we could have heard more. And, but I think I'm sure you also agree that interpreting data from international surveys can be tricky and potentially problematic. And I want to pick up on a few points. I think one of the most important questions your survey asks is, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way democracy is working in your country? Um, but I wonder if this question means the same thing in different countries. In a mature liberal democracy like the UK, the answer tells us whether citizens feel their democratic institutions are working for them. If they express dissatisfaction, this could mean that democracy is not enough. Or some people feel there is too much democracy in the sense that they feel they are forced to go along with uh, popular movements they disagree with, as was the case, for example, with the Brexit referendum. So in a semi-democracy like Singapore, however, the 20% of people who express dissatisfaction might actually be saying there is not enough democracy. So I'm not sure how to interpret the data. Uh, in some countries, citizens may be unhappy because there's too much political conflict, uh, while in other countries, citizens may be equally unhappy for the opposite reason, not enough political choice or competition. In fact, in any society, you will probably find both sentiments. In Hong Kong, where I am, for example, it's easy to find uh, people who feel there's too much democracy and others who feel there's too little. And both ends of the spectrum are equally dissatisfied. So while the data is interesting, I'm not sure how what we should conclude from that. Um, secondly, uh, looking at this other interesting piece of data on Singaporeans' confidence in the government's handling of the pandemic, uh, again, I, I feel that this is another trend that is open to interpretation. Um, I think everyone who looked at that uh, chart would have noticed that the graph hit a very low point. The lowest point was in July 2020, which was the month of the general election. So one possible conclusion is that the PAP really lucked out by choosing the worst possible month to hold the GE. Uh, but perhaps there's an alternative explanation, uh, which is that the opposition's very intense, very public questioning of the government in the run-up to the polls succeeded in pulling down public confidence, which then rebounded post-GE when the government was once again able to dominate the conversation. And remember in July, it was already three months after they discovered the dormitory uh, problem and they were well in the thick of solving it. It wasn't at the height of uh, the discovery of that problem, which was in April. So if you accept this theory, right, about confidence levels, the question is whether we should be thanking or blaming the opposition for that dip in, in July. I think this depends on whether you think the government objective, objectively deserved the upper or lower end of the public confidence levels shown in the survey which is of course a very subjective and contentious question. Um, another point that I wanna pick up, uh, I, I think I might be running out of time. So very, very quickly, I think the data on people's attitudes towards immigration, again, I, I found the international comparisons fascinating, but a bit hard for me to decipher. When a high proportion of citizens call for strong limits on immigration, what exactly is going on? 
public opposition to immigration could be the result of very irrational nativist and xenophobic sentiment incited by populist politicians. Uh, this was how the data at least was framed to me. I mean, that's my interpretation, but Roboto, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, within the discussion of, it was framed within the discussion of populism. But could it also be that this was a rational considered judgment uh, that you know, policy, policymakers have miscalculated and immigration rates are excessive. Uh, the data that show a desire for stricter controls was even higher in the Philippines and Indonesia than in Singapore, even though these two much larger Southeast Asian countries have not experienced anywhere near the same immigration rates that Singapore has. So I also suggest that we look more closely at the intensity of anti-immigrant feelings, not just how many people feel negatively. There are countries where compared to Singapore, there's a much smaller percentage of citizens who want to limit immigration, but then this small minority engages in hate crimes or other forms of violence. And some of the xenophobia that we see in Singapore is ugly, but it's far from violent. It's not violent at all. So I, I, I do agree with Roberto's point that we shouldn't be too quick to conclude that support for immigration policies is all due to an irrational and dangerous populist wave sweeping through the country. Uh, very quickly on Terence, uh, Terence's remarks, they were equally stimulating. I think Terence pointed out that there were different forms of democracy other than liberal democracy and that the hand-wringing among educated liberals in the West has to be seen as a reaction to the problems being faced in those uh, liberal democracies. So are you arguing that uh, some other form of democracy to be found in Southeast Asia is in contrast thriving? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I also want to pick up on a small point about uh, your remark about the GE 2011, uh, your analysis rather. Uh, was the unhappiness about immigration, transport policy, inadequacy, and public housing shortages that we saw in 2011 a sign of populism or a reasonable reaction to policy failures? And when the government adjusted its policies, was this a sign of populism winning or just good government getting better? Uh, I think this is this question is connected to a deeper doubt that I have about this evening's topic. Are we um, clear enough about the place of public opinion and popular sentiment in democracy? Whether it's a liberal democracy or communitarian democracy that Aaron talked about. Uh, Zorinda, yeah. I don't want to interrupt, but you've raised yeah. so many questions. You could, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll stop here. So I look that. forward to hearing from yeah. the fellow panelists. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, but maybe Roberto could respond quite, quite quickly um, without getting too granular into all your survey methodologies and so on, so that we can have a broader uh, discussion because I've also got a lot of questions from the audience, very intelligent questions from the audience that would prompt all the panelists to have a discussion. So Roberto, please respond. But again, um, Zoraida raised so many issues about your, your survey methodologies. Please don't, don't dive too deep into them. And Terence, would you like to also respond? And then maybe we'll open up for general discussion amongst you all. And after which I will then um, read out the questions from the audience. Roberto? Sure, I, I can respond very, very briefly, uh, which is just to say that um, 
I agree that survey data is a starting point for a discussion. Uh, it is not the ending point of the discussion. And survey data precisely requires interpretation. Um, survey indicators are indicators, and indicator only indicates, uh, it only points in a direction. And we have to pick it up and then get into the details and start asking what that really means. Um, so I, I agree absolutely um, with the um, with Mr. Riders. Well, that was very fast. <laughs> Terence, your response, please. Yeah, so uh, democracies. No, I'm, I'm not saying that um, anything found in Southeast Asia is superior. I'm just pointing out that in different forms of democracies, there are different expectations of different institutions within this, um, these democracies. Um, and because of the different expectations and different uh, um, uh, roles and, and whether they're limited or whether they are uh, broader, um, um, the kind of pessimism and, and uh, depression that you find uh, so um, permeating the West um, is not found in Southeast Asia. So that's one point. Second point about GE and whether um, uh, it was populism or not. I think populism does not come up from a vacuum. I mean, there has to be genuine rouses. Uh, people are unhappy for a real reason. And populist politicians, uh, movements are able to kind of whip it up into a frenzy. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, if, if you're, well, first of all, before I go on to, there's lots of very interesting questions I'd like to get into, but but do any of the other discussants, um, Aaron, do you have any points you want to make, or Terence or Roberto, do you want to say anything more about the general uh, discussion that you've had between yourselves? Um, otherwise, I would I would basically read the questions to all of you. Go to I, questions, yeah. Yeah, why don't I read the questions? And I'm being very democratic here. Um, Pigeonhole, as you know, has, has sorted out the question that are, gotten the most responses. And I think we've got so many interesting ones, I really would like to get through all of them. Now, let me also emphasize here that now we're going into the general discussion, it's basically all four equal panelists. So all of you are all together responding uh, in any way you wish to, um, to any of the questions. The, the first question, which was the one that was most popular, um, reads as follows. Given the tide of anti-establishment sentiments, do the panelists have any ideas on how to reset the rules of engagement with citizens. Anyone want to have a take on that? I think, do you mind if I go first? No, oh, please, please. Yeah. So I think I think key is trust. I mean, it, it's a bit cliche to say, um, but I think the breakdown of trust between um, uh, the electorate and um, their representatives uh, is so stark in Western countries. Um, and. I think once that trust has broken down, um, and not only that, you have a, um, different sources of misinformation going on, that it is very difficult for a democracy to function. Um, any democracy, when it's injected with um, misinformation, cannot function the way it was designed to. And so I think trust is very, very important. That's my two cents. Anyone? Yeah, if I could add, uh, mm -hmm. I agree, absolutely. But I think that um, maybe the trust is a coin with two sides. Uh, on one side is trust, and the other side is trustworthiness. Um, and so I think part of the problem in many Western societies uh, where there has been rising inequality, uh, or increasingly perhaps narrow uh, economic and political elites, um, and in some countries, in fact, I think of Southern Europe, perhaps even greater levels of, of actual malfeasance or corruption. And so I think that, um, you know, that it requires uh, elites that uh, are trustworthy 
uh, and that listen and respond to popular concerns. Uh, and when you have that, I think it's easier uh, for trust to be given. Okay, I've got a, I've got a question here, which I knew was going to come up when Aaron mentioned about inclusivity, because you know in the Singapore context you know what inclusivity would mean. So here it, the question is, and this got the, has got the highest vote so far, even more than the previous one because they've been coming in higher. And it and it says here, can Aaron share an example of how opposing values, such as between LGBT and LT, anti LGBT values, how can they coexist in the democratic ideal that he shared with us? You know, Komping, this is a hard question, and, and I think it's one that will be a preoccupation of our politics, both personal and systematic, um, well into the next few years. Um, I'm going to, I'll answer it this way. A lot of the core idea of the communitarian model that I described, right, is the fact that politics is not simply something that happens to us. It's not imposed on us by an outside structure. It's also something we choose to participate in, right? And so there is a sense of agency among citizens, um, not just being acted upon by, by a system. And within that, I actually think that a lot of these, the initial opposition needs to be dealt with, not by waiting for the system to transform, but through interpersonal encounter and interactions that can be as rich as possible. Um, I get a lot of this in my interfaith dialogue work as well, because you know, sometimes between faith, there can be fairly irreconcilable differences around you know, the divinity or non-divinity of particular characters. And when you face that, I think what needs to happen is not trying to debate or persuade each other, but to kind of try and find the other points of commonality that we have the sources of multiple identities that Terence talked about, which actually allow us to relate to people in ways that are human, even if we don't have other similarities with them. And I'll give a very personal set of examples here. Right? I mean, I come from a family that is mixed. We are mostly, uh, um, we're half Muslim and, and Roman Catholic in, in the extended family, good smattering of, of you know, Hindus and, and other people of other faiths. Um, there's a fair number of, of homosexuals in the family. Um, there is one transsexual, in the family. Um, and this is in a system where, you know, a family where the values are quite well entrenched and there are some folks who are deeply conservative about this. But you find that the, ge the generic uh, categories that they, they might hate, I'm sorry, there's dogs outside the house. Um, but you, you find that the, um, it's very easy to, to hate a category. It's much harder to hate a human being uh, when they're in front of you and you've grown up with them and, and there is that sense of personal interaction and encounter. And I think one of the first things we need to do, right, to, to bring together these oppositional values is to make sure that there are as many opportunities as possible for that encounter to happen. If we don't do that, then we reify the differences and we ensure that there will never be any kind of coming together because we don't even allow for that, that interaction and engagement to happen. But it needs to start with the personal, I think, not just waiting for the system to transform. Anyone else have a view on this? Zoraida, would you want to say anything? No. Oh, sorry, I couldn't hear much of it. Go on, sorry. Okay, well, what, what I like to do now um, is I'm, I'm combining two questions into one because they, they basically touch on, on the issue of meritocracy. What I will do is read both of them out to you. And then perhaps since it's a double, double barreled question, perhaps each of the uh, panels would like to give their take on it. And it reads as this, um, how should we change the concept of meritocracy as it has been practiced in Singapore? Who are the key actors? if we are to do this? That's one question. And the second one is, from the previous forum on leadership, meritocracy is also the justification for how Singapore chooses its leaders. Is, the semblance of is there a semblance of democratic choice of leaders only for those who are deemed, quote unquote, meritorious? 
Anyone would like to take it? Have a take on this? Terence, since you are errant, please. Yeah. Um, and I think this links actually to the first question that was posed to us and you know, how we would reset our society because I think how we define merit is actually going to be a very key um, aspect of that reset. And I can think of three things. Right? One is I think we need to define uh, merit in a much more diverse way. That's one key thing that I think answers both questions. To remember that this is not just about paper qualifications, it's not just about wealth. There are many forms of excellence, right? And that we need to make sure that even if we have multiple identities, we identify multiple forms of excellence and recognize them in as many different ways as possible. There are so many people I work with in the civil service, you know, who are clever, but not the cleverest people around, but have tremendous interpersonal power, tremendous EQ, and move very far because they have that kind of pull and influencing capabilities. And I think recognizing that that is an equal and, and important part of intelligence um, is, is, a, is a key thing. And there are many other kinds of intelligence as well. I would also say that what, however we define merit, once it has been defined in as diverse a way as possible, we need to make sure that the ends of meritocracy are as ethical as possible. Those of us who happen to be blessed contingently and luckily with gifts of particular kinds need to make sure that we are out there trying to do as much good as we can for others rather than to harden and reify the benefits that we have, right? That, that I think doesn't create any kind of social benefit. And if we can have that kind of both diverse and ethical orientation to how we define merit, then actually we, I think we end up with a better society at the end of it. Um, if I can just jump in very quickly on this point about meritocracy and leadership. Uh, to me, from my perch in Hong Kong, uh, it's very clear that our Singapore leadership doesn't show enough internal diversity. I think if you, if you look at the lineup uh, on paper, everyone's very impressive. But if you look at them as a team, the combination of talents that they bring to the table, the strengths that they bring to the table, there is far more uniformity rather than diversity. And this is a far cry from what you saw in the first and second generation leadership. If you think back to the team that uh, Lee Kuan Yew had, or even the team that uh, Go Chok Tong had, uh, or even the team that uh, uh, Lee Hsien Lung started out with in 2004, I would argue that there was far greater diversity there. And I hope that this is something that the government is acutely conscious of and is working very hard to address. If not, I think we are going to be headed towards very dangerous territory where groupthink will dominate and the policy outcomes will suffer as a consequence. And I think the path to PAP's decline then will be uh, irrevocable. Anyone else would like to make a comment? I, 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 Terence, would you like to? No, I think I think the points that I wanted to make have already been made. I mean, um, I agree completely with uh, both uh, Aaron and Ryder. I think um, we have to broaden our definition of uh, merit. We have to broaden our definition of talent. Um, and I also add that the state, being the largest employer, has to take the lead on this. And and, and you can see um, it has. Um, it's it's moving towards different types of uh, banding for, for, for secondary school students um, and, and, and express streams and normal streams and all that. So things are moving. The question is, can it move fast enough? Uh, what about the generations who have kind of missed out? Um, uh, it's, no, it's not very comforting to, for them to, to, to hear that, oh, we, we, 
policy is is is, is moving slowly, but uh, um, mean in the meantime they are losing out on opportunity. So so yeah, that's my two cents. I, I I have one take on this also. I mean, from from my position with um, with SMU and my interest in tertiary education, um, I think you know in in the U.S. now you notice that Donald Trump is always referring to his base. The base that's referred to as Donald Trump's base is not college educated uh, Americans and white, of course, but generally not college educated. You also see that what they call the college premium in the U.S., which is the premium of salary that that a university educated person would get versus non-college educated has doubled. It, it used to be a 40% premium and now it's an 80% premium that exists in the US. Now, you know, in, in Singapore in the old days when we were having a sort of British style educational system where generally only five to 10% of the population would be university educated, which was the case in Singapore when we first became independent, the university educated elites were so small that they clearly were an elite and that was all. Now we're approaching 40% and 42% of our population will be university educated. So that's big, broad segmentation. Half the population will have university education. And as you know from statistics too, that half that has got university education generally will have children who get university education. The other half generally do not. And that's, that's one fault line that, that I'm quite concerned of for the future. That's just a general comment. Um, I have one more, uh, I have another, a few more questions. One here, do the panelists have examples of societies that have navigated generational differences well? Uh, we have seen how uh, post-materialism values can divide families, uh, for example, as in Hong Kong. Um, perhaps I can address this to Roberto, who I know wouldn't want to step too much into, into the, you know, the, the morass of Singaporean politics as such. So since this question is about other societies that have navigated generational differences well, perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Yeah, um, I mean, we just put out recently a report um, a few months ago looking at intergenerational divides in uh, political satisfaction and where uh, there was really a, a satisfaction, where in the world you had really large satisfaction deficit uh, among younger generations with prevailing political institutions. And one of the things that came out from that um, was that actually East Asia as a whole um, comes out pretty well, uh, that the generational divide uh, in Japan, uh, in Korea, Taiwan is actually not uh, so great. Uh, it's really in the United States, in Britain, in Southern Europe, in Latin America, where the real generational conflicts uh, appear to be uh, prevalent right now, whereas East Asia and also Northern Europe, Scandinavia, uh, came out uh, pretty positive. Anybody else? It seems to be a positive note. Well, if I, if I may, then the next question actually ties in a little bit about generational differences. And it's regarding a bit on the digital divide. And the question is, how can governments balance between the strident voices of social activists online, which is probably one particular generation, with their traditional offline constituents? How can people interact across the digital divide? Well, wow, that's the longest pause I've heard. Do I get to, as moderator, I get to choose, right? So I'm gonna pick on uh, Aaron, you're, the, you're probably the youngest of us all, so you should cross the digital divide better than the rest of us. So you take that one. 
Aaron, you're muted. Yes, no, thank, thanks, Corping. Uh, uh, it's in a way, I suppose I, I, I deserve having to answer this. I, I am what they call an exennial. You know, I, I had a analog childhood, um, born between 1977 and 83, and, and then a digital adulthood. So, so I think in my life, I've actually had to, you know, I, felt, I found myself bridging that, that divide quite um, seriously. And, and I, the one thing I think is important here is that governments all over the world, actually, not just ours, need to make sure that they are catering to both the digital and analog um, sets of constituents. I, I think about you know, how we've been dealing with COVID in Singapore, for instance. A lot of things have been happening online, right? There's stuff that goes out on WhatsApp, um, updates that go out from the Ministry of Health. I had friends calling me periodically and saying, how come the daily update of the COVID cases hasn't come in yet? Where's that gone? But there are also very, very analog things that have happened, right? Things like the, the posters that exist um, on all our broadsheets telling us how to wear our masks, what kind of social behavior is acceptable or not. Um, so I think we're in a state where actually that sort of hybridity is, is quite important. Will we have to go more digital in the future? Possibly, but I think we need to do that in a way that is fairly calibrated because there are plenty of folks out there who are, who are not always you know, as digitally connected and who don't have as much digital access as, as others do. So I think having both modes of communication is key. And then we need to find ways to make sure that we include as many as possible in the digital um, sphere. So you know, our government has put out, uh, for instance, uh, about a thousand digital ambassadors um, who've been going around and working uh, not just with senior citizens uh, as a major constituency, but also with owners of small businesses, um, hawkers and uh, market stall owners, those who have not always felt the deepest need or incentive to digitalize and worked with them to say, here's how you do it, right? Let's humanize the benefits of this. Let's talk about what the reality of dealing with this is like um, and take away some of the fear and the mystery that's involved in the process. And it's been really heartwarming to watch some of that happen actually, because there are some folks who've come together in, in groups of you know, either senior citizens or groups of hawkers and micro enterprise owners have come along wanting to learn how to use some of this technology. So I think even as we try and make sure that we include as many as possible through multiple modes of communication, we need to make sure that we are bringing as many people on board with the digital transformation train as, as can be brought. I think another interesting area about uh, digitalization in general is that where Singapore, in fact, has been a bit ahead of the curve. Remember when, when Singapore decided to have some regulation over the so-called digital dialogue, what's happening in social media and so on, uh, everybody else in the world would be accusing Singapore of censorship and regulation and so on. And now you see the irony of you can be a business person who owns Twitter and you can actually ban the president of the United States uh, from being able to speak. And so two individuals, Mark Zuckerberg and um, I think Jack Dorsey, are actually more powerful than the most powerful politician in America. And that's stirred up a whole huge debate, which we don't need to get into here. Um, anybody else would like to say, have any other point about the digital divide? Yeah, I would actually would like to jump onto mm -hmm. that last bit, which uh, the sort of contrarian idea that came to mind was that actually maybe um, we don't need to bridge the digital divide, we need to widen it again. Uh, because a lot of the problem with the online civic uh, space is that we're all pressed up against each other. Uh, and, you know, in the past, you wouldn't be aware of people who had differing opinions to yours and you wouldn't really care about them expressing them. But now everybody is crammed together in these social media spaces and always triggered and frustrated uh, by what other people uh, say and what they say they said and what they say they say they said. Uh, so in a way, getting us back to a space uh, where we can start, where societies, communities can start to have, and this is maybe part, part of the path to preserving a communitarian society, is being able to actually have those dialogues that are not connected to one another uh, that can actually operate uh, with some space and distance to breathe. 
Mm -hmm. Roberto, I feel like you're advocating long-form interactions rather than tweets here. <laughs> uh, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Twitter. <laughs> Do any of you have a Twitter account at all? Do any of you tweet? Who? Everybody. So Ryder says yes. Yes. Tweet. I don't. Uh, Roberto, do you tweet? No, I don't use Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I'm, I'm a social you? media hermit. No. Well, okay. Now we know. Now we know who are the influencers within us, and we know who are the Neanderthals. So, <laughs> yes, Terence. Yeah. Um, so the question that's I, I'm not sure what the question was. Um, did it try to ask if we should bridge? the digital divide by way of making um, technology, using technology to make the lives of people who, who have no access to technology. Um, so in other words, the elderly, helping them to kind of access technology, um, navigating uh, the digital um, uh, world. Or are we asking um, um, the kind of activism that's found on um, cyberspace is very different from the kind of activism that you see in real life. Um, of course, as we all know, the kind of activism that you see in cyberspace can be uh, fast and furious, sometimes very rude, um, and, 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 and it takes a certain liberty. Whereas the kind of activism that you see in, in real life is something, a different reality altogether. So what, what is the question? Um, is it trying to bridge, bridge the, the, the divine help using technology to help people who, who, who need them or yeah. Terence, Terence, so, well, first of all, we don't, you know, in this kind of online discussion, I can't see, uh, can you stand up, please, the person who asked that question, clarify yourself. And secondly, I think in most conferences, a question is usually just a jumping off point for panelists to have their own take on the general topic. I don't think you need to worry too much about what the writer of that question specifically meant. So based on my reading out those questions, whatever you interpret it to mean or or if you want to riff on something else that cropped up in your mind about the so-called digital divide, about you know, the influence of digital media in, in our societies and so on, please, this, this should be a free-ranging discussion. You, you're not asked to respond specifically to uh, a question. So give your own take on whatever you want. Sorry, if I can just respond to that point very quickly, I think this uh, attempt to dichotomize uh, digital uh, media versus analog media and, and, and the communication that should uh, operate in different, uh, the two different dimensions, uh, I don't see why that should actually be a point of contention or serious discussion. I think we have reached a stage where I think communications must apply across the board. Whatever you communicate in digital media, you have to ensure your messaging as far as policymakers are concerned. I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of policymakers. It has to apply across the board. You don't make that distinction. But I think where you do need to make the distinction, where I think the ruling party um, has an advantage that I, I it might be at risk of losing, especially if the pandemic continues for a while yet. I think the capacity for human interaction uh, cannot be replaced uh, by digital media. And, and you see this in the way the PAP operated uh, and, and tried to run the 2020 election where they couldn't do their house to house visits. And this I think contributed to how they didn't perform as well as they would have liked to. So 
nothing like oxytocins that are generated when you when you mix and mingle. And that's still necessary in politics, no matter how far into digital media we want to uh, go into and embrace. Mm. Thank you. You know, one, one, of the, one of the pleasures of being a moderator is you get to predict what kinds of questions are going to come up. I got one right at least about inclusivity and then I knew, you know, um, LGBT would come up. Now I look at Zoraida and I know, I knew all along the question is going to come up. And you can guess any Singaporean who lived in Hong Kong is going to be asked about Hong Kong because we just love to compare ourselves with Hong Kong. So Zoraida, uh, this question is, um, what is the view from Hong Kong about the demand for democracy? I mean, look, look, that's a huge question already, so you can answer it any way you want. And then it goes on to ask, how should popular sentiment, you mentioned how it is polarized, be read? Whose view should count? And most importantly, afterwards, for you as a Singaporean living in Hong Kong, the question ends by saying, any parallels in Singapore? Oh, very good question and very dangerous question. So I have to tread carefully. Um, I, I think the problem in Hong Kong is far more basic. I think you don't actually need such an intellectual discussion to analyze it. Uh, the reality, the, the, the hard truth is that Hong Kongers don't have the vote, period. Uh, they can't kick out a non-performing executive branch and they can't resolve uh, disputes peacefully at the ballot box. We have all of that, and therein lies the difference. And that's your take on Singapore too, is it? Absolutely. That's a all big right. and fundamental difference that we sometimes tend to forget. Okay, let me take another question then. Uh, about Singapore, and can I make it a rule here that the three Singaporeans have to respond to this one, okay? What would democracy look like in the age of social media and influences? Oh no, this is a slightly changed one. Um, they, they keep on moving these questions around. Anyway, I'll go ahead with this one. How, what would democracy look like in the age of social media and influences? Uh, for example, in our recent general election, we saw some politicians becoming social media stars. Is this healthy for Singapore? Well, the social media stars among us, I guess those who have a Twitter account should be the first to answer. But you've all, and you know, first of all, can all the panelists, five of us all being unmuted together at the same time is not a problem. You're not going to get too much uh, feedback, the, 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 you know, the feedback. So don't answer and then uh, mute yourself. Just keep yourself open and unmuted for the whole, the, this whole panel discussion, then it's a much easier. So the tweeters, any comments? What should democracy look like in the age of social media and influences? Coming from influencers like you, tweeters yourselves, um, is it healthy for our politicians to become social media stars? Aaron, Zoraida, Zoraida, you are muted still. Sorry, yeah. Um, I don't quite know how to answer that question, really, because 
one, if I were a politician, I would want to conquer as many platforms as possible, right? I would want to get the vote. I want to be as popular as possible without being populist necessarily. I would want to be able to connect to my voters and make sure that I remain as accessible as possible. And if in the process I need to uh, open, you know, lift the seven veils to my private life and uh, gain popularity along the way and appear more human and vulnerable, um, I think power to them. I, I, I don't see how we can turn the clock back. I think uh, social media is here to stay. I think it's a question of how you harness its positive benefits and how you have the discipline to share, but not overshare. Um, and actually, if you look at our Singapore politicians, a lot of them have done really well. And I would argue that actually the last five years or so, they've managed to appear far more human than they did uh, 10, 20 years ago. I, I, I would imagine that, you know, if uh, Lee Kuan Yew was around here and if he had social media, I don't know, you know, maybe he would he would have been feared, but also loved. Lee Kuan Yew as a, as a uh, Lee Kuan Yew in a tweet, that would be amazing. Aaron, did you have a view on this? And, and yeah, I do. So feel free to chime in. Sure. Um, I just want to riff on something the writer said about, you know, kind of harnessing the, the, the benefits of social media while not moving to the, the, dis, the potential dysfunctions that are there. You know, the thing is, in the world of social media, the world that has influences in it, there's actually so many potential network effects that we can gather um, for not just for politics, but for political life in general, right? There is the, 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 the potential for far greater speed at getting out to people. There's the potential to get out at far larger scale than we've managed to before. Uh, at far greater scope, there's huge benefits, right? And new abundances, if you like, that come from the use of digital technology. Uh, but there are also the fact that these abundances apply to very bad things, right? Distortions, disinformation, rumors, untruths can also spread um, like wildfire in this kind of environment. And I think for me, if I'm answering that question, what would democracy look like in the age of social media and influencers? I think a healthy democracy is one that really takes the trouble to ensure that its leaders and those who are influencers, not just politicians, because in an age of social media, lots of people can exercise influence, that they must have a certain a set of values and, and responsibility in what they put out there, knowing that the stuff they can they put out is going to achieve speed and scale and scope at, at large and unprecedented levels. Um, and then we need to make sure that those of us who are consumers of that information have the vocabulary and the discernment to know what is useful for us versus what looks like it might actually, you know, be either be made up or a deep fake or, or you know, something along those lines. And I think we need to become much more literate consumers in this world as well. Again, I go back to what I started out with, right? That politics is not just something that happens to us. We have to participate in it actively. And therefore the a democracy that is in uh, healthy and hearty in a world of social media is one that has both producers and consumers of information who are much more literate than before. Great. Aaron, do you, do you yeah. think you, oh, sorry, please. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of social media is that it allows you to curate uh, your image. Um, you are able to fashion a particular brand or self-image to put out more to the world. And I think if you do it well, then fine, but not many people can do it well. Um, and people are looking for a certain sense of authenticity, uh, whether it's a, a genuine authenticity or a contrived one that's been 
uh, manicured and curated to show your lighter side or not, um, people can suss it out very quickly. Um, and so I think the, the search is not so much social media, but it's, it's the search for authenticity um, and how you come across, how you put across this authenticity across various platforms, whether it's uh, a one-one dialogue in front of, in a hall with a thousand people or in a tweet. And I think that's what politicians would be striving for. And we've seen how some of them have failed and some of them have succeeded. Thank you. Um, anyone else want to comment on this? Roberto, do you want to say anything on this? Yeah, I mean, I think I have some hesitations uh, about social media democracy because I think in many ways that we uh, do live in a social media democracy, certainly in Western societies, we live in social media democracies. And, and there are some real problems with that. Um, I think the first one is that uh, social media doesn't actually, it's actually quite undemocratic uh, because social media doesn't reflect public opinion. And I work in survey research, so I can see that the, mm -hmm. the world that it appears uh, when people are uh, surveyed in a nationally representative poll is a very different world to the world of social media. So if politicians are responding to social media, uh, they may be actually doing things that are actually not in line uh, with majority uh, public opinion. Um, and the other problem, of course, is that social media is not an egalitarian space. I mean, as has been mentioned, I mean, there, there is uh, a latent inequality in terms of those who are powerful influencers, those who don't have influence, and those, of course, who don't even use social media at all, which is still a fairly large proportion of individuals. Thank you. I have one question now that's gotten very popular. It's going to put Aaron a bit on the spot, and I'm going to ask Aaron to respond to this, but also ask our other two Singaporeans to respond, because you might have a slightly different view from Aaron. The question here is, speakers from earlier sessions have used language that suggests we have a politicized public service. As Singapore matures, how important is it for our public service to strike a more independent tone from the politicians? Thanks, uh, Kwamping. In a lot of ways, I think that's a very natural question. Um, I'll start by saying this. Our public service is one that operates in a, in a Westminster democracy, right? a parliamentary democracy, where a fundamental role is really to, to serve the government of the day whoever that government is, right? Whatever party they come from, whatever coalition of parties they come from, um, if that were to happen. And I would say, you know, I've done five different rotations now in, in different parts of the government. Um, some very internally focused, some focus on long-term strategies, some focus on economic or foreign policy roles. Um, and I would say that in, in all of those roles, I have not seen examples of politicization. This may not be visible outside because civil servants will have intense debates with our, our, our political masters, right? We work with them. We will disagree sometimes internally on what can or cannot be done. Sometimes, you know, our views will get taken in and we find a, a middle ground solution that meets the needs of, our, of the politicians, but also meets the, the, in a sense, the technocratic needs of what civil servants need. At other times, you, there will be some instances where the politician's view will prevail. But in all of those instances, what we make sure we do as, as a public service is to make sure that, that the, the overall welfare of Singapore is going to be taken care of, right? If, we, if, if a policy goes, gets pushed through, which we may not agree with entirely, then our job is to make sure that we minimize the harms that come out of it. And it, it is also our job before that stage of decision-making happens to make sure that we put up as, as wide a range of options as possible 
debate them and make sure that they are given due consideration in the whole process. But the thing we all have to remember is that fundamentally we, we are not the ones running for elections. So I don't think a system where a public service serves to or strikes to strike a more independent note is necessarily a healthy one. Because what you then have is potential quite dysfunctional divides. And we're seeing this happen in other examples of Westminster democracies all over the world. Um, and, and if you have multiple different sources of lots of different people posturing about different positions, I don't think that says very much about the kind of unity and the overall approach that is being taken in public policy formulation. I don't think that's healthy, particularly in a space like Singapore, right, which is very small and in a lot of ways doesn't have room to maneuver, um, given that we are a price taker um, in the global economy and that we don't have a huge amount of policy space sometimes to, to make uh, huge um, errors in, in the kind of policy formulation that we do. So I would say that that's the fundamental role that we have. Make sure that the options are, are out there as best as we can, debate them. A lot of that happens internally. It won't always be visible outside, but it does happen. And then finally, when it comes to implementation, make sure that whatever the implementation is, it is done in a way that has fidelity to the overall welfare of Singaporeans. Thank you. I was going to ask others for their views, but we're getting close to the end of the session. I didn't want to just conclude uh, without asking each of the participants in a very succinct 15, 20 second summary. You know, we've had a very broad ranging discussion. What is your main takeaway uh, from this discussion, which if I would ask you, if, if you were addressing the audience today at the end of all this, what would you like them to take away with them as perhaps what to you is the most important point? Um, can we do this in reverse order? Uh, Zoraida, would you like to start first and then Aaron and Terence and Roberto? Okay, um, very quickly, I think I just want to make a couple of points. I think uh, comparisons with other societies are useful, but not always relevant. I think the Singapore experience has so many unique points that we have to be careful about overgeneralizing uh, certain global trends that we are witnessing elsewhere and superimposing them uh, on the Singapore situation. I think that's very important. Uh, the second point that I want to make is that uh, I, I was a bit troubled by parts of the discussion where we seem to suggest that um, populism had to do with this divide between the elites and the not so well off. And there was talk about, uh, I think it was Terence who used this phrase called politics of resentment. I think the danger or the risk of using a phrase like that is that we risk delegitimizing what could be genuine sentiments or grievances problems and issues faced by the communities that are suffering or at, 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 the, at a great disadvantage compared to the rest of us. I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron? Thanks very much, Kwambing. Um, I have one simple thing, and it's what I started with, you know, the fact that politics is not just something that exists outside of us. It's not just an external set of structures and systems. It's something we all participate in. And for me, the sources of hope, right, the things that give me hope for the future of Singaporean politics writ large is that all of us will need to take uh, our role in it and play a very serious part. That means participating, it means having agency and investment and ownership in this overall national project that we take part in. Thank you. Terence? Yeah, so my takeaway is that I think I'll just repeat what I, how I concluded. I think... Um, there are many things that divide us and there will be many things that will continue to divide us. And that's very natural because as we mature as a society, um, forces and class and values will continue. But we shouldn't be wringing our hands in despair. 
Um, there are things that uh, draw us together and we do have a lot of common things. It's just that uh, we don't pay enough attention to them. And I think when we start doing that, then we can build common identities and shared values. Thank you. Roberto? Yeah, I mean, I think actually the main thing I take away is that uh, I'm not an expert on Singapore. And the main thing I take away is that maybe Singapore actually has quite a lot to teach the rest of the world. Um, I mean, when we look at these international comparisons, I mean, Singapore does come out very positively uh, on many of these measures. And so uh, even though the framing of this conference is to think about Singapore in 2021 and what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and we've talked a lot about threats, um, I think it's important not to lose, um, lose that uh, uh, perspective either. Thank you. Thank you. And um, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, we've come to the end of the session tonight. Uh, I'd like you to join me in thanking all the panelists and the audience too for their, their very incisive questions. I'm, as I conclude this, I'm left with only one memory. As I watch television and I see what's happening in, in, the, in the Western world, in the US and elsewhere, I'm reminded that some long time ago when I passed out, when I finished as a officer, my passing out parade in 1972 was only about four years or so after national service was introduced. And the, the minister who presided at my passing out parade was actually Go King Sui. And Go King Sui in his short speech basically mentioned about how it takes decades to build up a society and only a few years to destroy it. I, I couldn't help but really, you know, remember that when I saw all the events unfolding in the US and as a small country, I think we do have to be very grateful for what we've built up and to also recognize it is so easy to destroy the society we've built. With that, thank you all very much for this session and I pass it back to you, Han. Thank you all. Han, we can't hear you. I thought I should tell you this. Um, how about now? Yes. <laughs> yep. yes. Perfect. Thank you so yep. very much. And thank you for that. Uh, thanks, Kongping, uh, for moderating the session. And we'd like to thank all the panelists, Roboto, uh, Terence, Aaron, and Zoraida, and all of you for joining in and uh, contributing to the discussion. Uh, this session has been recorded, and you will be able to record the uh, view the uh, recording on this conference page. Uh, do feel free to continue with your comments on the uh, session's topic of global trends, social movements and democracy, and in the conference chat, as we'll be taking all our inputs today onto our plenary uh, sessions on the final day, as well as to the IPS Reimagining Singapore 2030 project. Thank you once again for joining us this evening, our next session. Uh, in the conference will begin on Monday, January 25th at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you then. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. <laughs>